Uh, welcome to church. My name's Colby. Serve as one of the pastors here. Um, I know uh, some of you uh, maybe moved here to ski, or you moved here for the mountains, and then some of you are weirdos that have lived here your whole life and still never went skiing. All right, I, don't, I don't get all that, all right? Uh, but I know there's different people in here that are kind of all across the board, but we did finally get snow a little bit late, right? Uh, I think Purgatory opened on Thanksgiving, and they had like nothing but good intentions on the ground out there. But we got that dump of snow, and uh, I kind of finally got around to taking the kids up. To be transparent, when I used to live somewhere else, I used to love coming to ski. And now that I live here, like I like it, but I'm not like some of you people, where if it would have powdered today, like you're skipping church. Like that's just not me. I'm not that far in. Uh, But I got kids, and they love it. And so um, I try to get up and to be a good dad and uh, take my kids skiing every once in a while. Quick pause. If you think you have sleep problems, the cure for them is take four or five kids skiing. Because you will pass out and sleep like a baby that night. All right? Unpause. So took the kids up skiing. We hadn't been since last year. It's like riding a bike though, right? You just go up and you get going. I begin to ski throughout the day, and I snowboard, all right? So I call it all skiing. Coke, Pepsi, it's all Coke, all right? And I'm snowboarding, coming down, and there's multiple other families from our church up there. We meet up with other people. We're kind of group, group going. And throughout somewhere, a couple hours into the day, boy, I'm feeling good. Like I, like, I picked up right where I left off. I might be twice as good this year as last year. And I start cutting in, start going kind of fancy, getting arrogant, all right? And I catch an edge on my board around kids and Katie and like everything. And I just, I'm, I'm kind of large here in the middle. From my belly button to the top of my like collarbone, just penguined right on the ground. And it, even though I've got quite a bit of, you know, abs going on, it just kind of knocked the breath out of me. And I hit the ground like a baby seal and just pop, just right on the ground. And I, ooh, like, ooh, and like bounced up. And it ended all that arrogance, right? Like the rest of the day, I'm, ski, I'm skiing different, all right? I'm much more, I'm focused. I'm aware of where everything is. I'm going slower, just taking it in, right? And this is... Exactly what I think is going to happen in the text today. Like failure. Like if somebody's filming it, you're making it on home videos. Failure. Public, embarrassing. It's never cool. You're getting snow out of your mustache. Just fail. Oftentimes, would you agree with this? Failure causes us to live differently. Especially, what do we do with failure? Either we're so embarrassed that we never try again, or we fail forward, where we allow our failures to be a teachable moment where it changes us for the better. I would argue this. In my life, I have learned much more from my failures than my successes. When I've blown it, a lot of times I've been successful, and I don't even know why I did it well or successful. 
But when I fail, don't you deconstruct absolutely everything that you did? And why it didn't go well? Or you wake up at 2 a.m. thinking about how you blew it so bad? So here's the thing that's going to happen in the text. As we come down from the mountain of transfiguration, we're going to walk into the disciples, followers of Jesus, blowing it publicly. And Jesus is going to coach them up about that. And so let's, uh, before we get into the text, let's just pray and ask for God to educate us to heavenly things. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Down here on earth where it is oftentimes the valley of the shadow of death, it is hard, it is challenging, and we don't bat, bat a thousand percent. God, come be hallowed here, glorified here, exalted here, amongst this church and this people that are at times um, going to spectacularly fail. God, would you come and teach us through your word how best to process and learn from our mistakes? God, more than that, would you come here and conquer sin that will cause us to run from you instead of to you? When we don't live up to our calling. God, there's no um, perfect people in this gathering except for you. And so God, come and through your word, pastor and shepherd us and make us holy. Set us apart for yourself. Cause us to be the kind of church that goes into the rough places and glorifies your name. I love your word. I love these people. Come now, Holy Spirit, and do your work. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. If you've got a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 9, start in verse 14. Let's recap just a bit. We're coming down out from the Mount of Transfiguration. I took two weeks to discuss the Transfiguration when Jesus unveils himself uh, before the disciples. And he went full Power Ranger mode and displayed that he's Optimus Prime behind the scenes. And we see him, God, throw on high beams, kind of blast them. Then a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Which, by the way, if you heard a voice from heaven even here today, and God from heaven spoke again here today, he would still be pointing us to the son. And so they have this spiritual camp high moment up on the mountain, and then they begin to descend the mountain. And as they descend the mountain, they have some discipleship time with Jesus where because they believe Jesus is the Messiah, and because they believe he is everything that he says that he is, it causes them to have questions. And we said that questions don't come simply because we don't know everything, but it, it like because they believe they have questions. St. Augustine, the early church father, would say, we believe in order to understand. And because of what we believe about the gospel, we ask questions about how that plays out. And the disciples particularly have a question that has to do with Elijah and John the Baptist and that role and that timing and order of which God is unveiling his plan of salvation. And so they got questions. And and so I kind of compared it to connect the dots, right? Like when you paint by numbers, if you paint the numbers incorrectly, it becomes a Van Gogh, right? Or something else. If If you don't connect the dots correctly... It just looks like a haystack of disconnected lines. 
And Jesus is wanting them to get it. He wants them to understand the Bible. And so one very basic thing I hope you took away from last week is when God gave us the scriptures, he did not give it to us with the intention that we wouldn't get it. I would argue the Bible is incredibly simple and straightforward about what its central message is. You're like, Colby, yeah, but there's debate and discussion and argument. No, I'm not, I'm not saying we can't mess it up. I'm just saying the central message of the Bible is incredibly gettable. And God interacts with them as they come down the mountain. Now, this is almost problematic for some of us. Because we've even had the heart of Peter when we in our own lives have had spiritually high moments. And Peter's up there and he's like, let's build tabernacles. Let's put a tent here. Let's, Jesus, let's put up a, a conference center and try to hold on to this spiritual high moment. Let's bottle it. Let's, let's keep it forever. And Jesus is like, nah, let's go down, let's go down into the valley. What we're going to get into in the valley today is that they are leaving the spiritual high of the mountaintop and they're plunging headlong into Monday. Right? No office space joke about like the case of the Mondays, but that's where they're going. Right? And I think all of us need to feel the tension of leaving the mountaintop. Let me put it to you one way. Some of us grew up in church or a church that we just loved. And the way, the, the hymns that they sang and the way they sang them, like just as I am. Can we sing that 42 times, right? Like I, I don't feel it until we get to like 42, 43 times of just as I am, right? Or, or for us, it was, you know, there has to be this high production or there was, there was kids things that were, there was methodology, there was programs and that, and that so spoke to me. That we don't look at the truth of the message that was communicated through those means. We look at the methodology. And we say, unless we sing the hymn, or unless we sing the new song, or we do this or do that, that way, I just can't spiritually connect with God. Or unless I go to camp, unless I have this kind of spiritual experience, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bottle the mountaintop. Let me switch into a different way we do this. Have any moms listen to me? Have any of you looked back at your or looked down at your kids and just been like, I do not want them to grow up? Right? Or you begin, you know, my grandmama used to flip through photo albums and look through and just get emotional, and I never understood it. Right? Now, if she were, if she was still alive, she'd be on Facebook and the memories pop up of how little your kids were at one time, and you forgot how. Don't you want to just like hold them, be like, don't ever grow up, right? You want to keep them in that space. But that's not good for you. That's not good for them or what God's called them to. Right? They need to face new challenges as they grow and develop. And you've got you to move with them. You thought it was challenging to get them potty trained. Then they became teenagers. And you wish you went back to... The potty, the potty training. So here's the thing. Mountain moments are good. Can we say that? Amen. Like I hope when you come to church, like you, you have God just, just sweep you off your feet. I, I hope for some of our young people, you go to camp and God takes you to the mountaintop. 
I hope that you have spaces in your life that are deep and sacred where Jesus unveils himself to you. These are good things. Drink it in. Drink it in. But don't stay there. You hear what I'm saying? They're good where you go up and the altitude takes your breath away. It's awe-inspiring. Up on a mountaintop, you get vision for what's ahead in your life. Go have those moments. But, but listen, there's a thing called a tree line. When you get below the tree line, that's where plants bear fruit. Battles are most often not fought on the mountaintop. They're fought in the valley of the shadow of death. If you're going to do what God has purposed for you to do in your life, you're going to have to leave the camp high and go into Monday. Do you hear me? You're going to have to go into hard spaces that you might bear fruit in the valley. And this is what's happening with them. They're leaving the tree line and they're plunging back down into a case of unclean spirits where there is small faith or faithlessness. So church, one thing I want to go right off the bat is my expectation is for God to meet us here on our gatherings on Sunday and us to leave the mountain. We are not building a monastery to huddle together in this church. We are training special forces to go out and take ground for the kingdom of God. you got to leave the mountain. And you got to go to places where they are faithless. Don't stay at church. But please, come here. Get filled so you can go there and pour yourself out. Go to your house church and get built up and encouraged so that you might be unleashed to build up and encourage other people and draw them to Christ. Okay, so that's my contextual introduction. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, so they're coming down. Remember, Peter, James, and John, inner circle up the mountain. The rest of the disciples are down at the base. They base camping. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes arguing. I've taught previously in the series in Mark about who the scribes were. They were copyists. They were experts in the law. They were academia. Uh, best comparison for us would probably be lawyers who also taught what they were experts in. This is academia. And they were arguing with the disciples. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. If you follow this at all through this Gospel of Mark, hey, uh, just for y'all online, that's not a gun. That was a balloon. Uh, Got to reel it back in now. Um, if the security team does not kick in the back door and just look around, I feel like they, they're not even paying attention out there. Um, it's good. If you've been paying attention in Mark at all, you understand why Jesus draws people in such a way that when they barely see them, they run at him. So they're running to greet him. And he asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Jesus questions their arguments. What are you arguing about with them? He doesn't say that all arguments are invalid. Notice. Paul's going to say that we 
actually do arguments and we tear down every thought that exalts itself up against the knowledge of God. People that think arguments or debates have no place don't understand what care for other people's soul look like. Sometimes we've got to get into some heavy discussions, amen? But Jesus questions, well, what are you arguing about with them? Okay, so the context is that Jesus walks in to a middle of an argument, which I've often hoped didn't happen when me and my wife are having some intense discussions. What would it be like for Jesus to walk into the middle of it? Now, probably, if you're in here and you're one of those people that avoids conflict like the plague, the idea that Jesus would just step in the middle of an argument makes you shudder just a little bit. Right? Like, it may be absolutely necessary for you to get involved, but if there's conflict involved, you just out. But Jesus, caring about the nature of truth and what they're discussing enters into the group chat. Jesus comes into the comment section on YouTube. Right? Back in the day when you were a kid, when I was growing up, there were certain like crack houses your, your parents told you not to go to. Or maybe it was your house. I don't know. And the wrong side of town. You don't go to this side of town. There's these people over there. Now it's like parents have to teach me. It's like never go to TikTok. Right? Like it's... It's its own form of the bad side of town. Jesus sees them arguing and enters into the argument. Fascinating about this, likely the scribes are much more educated by and large than they are. And because we know that the disciples are failing to do something in this passage, I would argue they are losing the argument. They're not winning without Jesus. Like, the scribes are seeing them not be able to do what Jesus does. They look at the church, and they look at what Jesus has done. They see incompatibility, and they're taking them to task over it. Anybody seen that before? And I don't think that most people are turned off by the fact that the church defends what she believes. I don't think that the ch- most people are completely turned off because we argue, we debate, and we defend truth. I don't think that. I think that people are turned off by arguments without power. It's merely us talking in circles, taking cheap shots trying to score points, but not trying to display the power of God that can transform people's lives if they actually make it to the feet of Jesus. See, the problem is not the argument. The problem is the lack of power. I don't think people are turned off by the fact everybody defends what they believe. Everybody is willing to argue, debate, discuss what they believe if it's down to the core of who they are. But what they are taking the disciples to task over is arguments without any power. Paul said, I didn't come with great preaching and cleverly devised sermons and talks. He says, I came, the kingdom of God comes when it comes in power. We got to defend, but we just can't do it in a God glorifying way without power. 
without his power. Now, look in verse 17. Check it. 17 says, And someone from the crowd, and we're going to get more detail about this, answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. We'll come back to that. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So it's like some Emily Rose stuff. So, I brought him to you, but you weren't here. So, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Notice one thing that's curious. We know from the Gospel of Mark, the disciples have preached repentance, and they have already previously, by the power of God, cast out demons. Amen? Y'all paid attention to that? They've done this before. But they come to this one, and they fail. And here's kind of the, the issue for the dad that's going to be bringing this kid. I brought my kid to you, but really what he did is I brought him to church. I brought my issue to church, but because there was no power in your people, it was not the same as bringing them to you. There's an inconsistency here. I know lots of people that would say, man, I came and I tried church. I came in and we tried, and it just, it didn't do nothing for me. And I argue all the time, church is not what changes you. Jesus is what changes you. And you can put lots of buildings up, gather lots of people, and they can call themselves a church, but if Jesus is not in the midst of them, there is no power to transform lives. There's no power. We are not the source, church, of the power of God that changes our neighbor's lives. He is the source. We merely reflect the power that He has. Is that not what we talked about at the transfiguration? He's the sun and we're the moon. And we merely reflect in a dark night the light of the sun. He says, I brought Him to you, but your disciples, though I asked them, we're not able. Now notice here, he talks about some different maladies, but it is clearly connected to the demonic. The Bible, and I think Austin taught this some months ago, is that the Bible actually does a fair job of dividing when something is just a normal physical malady and when something is demonic that might manifest itself physically. Let me put it to you this way. Not everybody that has a seizure has a demonic issue. Right? And sometimes they want to make a blanket statement, but the Bible divides it very clearly. When it is something that is manifesting from the, from the demonic, the Bible points that out specifically. And when it's just a physical ailment, like a shriveled hand, it points that out as well. And so, Jesus enters into this situation coming down the mountain like Moses, who when he got to the children of Israel, found them having constructed a golden calf in unbelief. And Jesus enters into people unchanged, faithless, that's what he calls them. Verse 19, faithless, he enters into their unbelief. And he answered them. Verse 19, O faithless generation. By the way, that counts both the disciples and the crowd. How long am I, how long 
Am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Man, that's still where all the power of a church is, is how good they are at bringing people to Jesus. Not how fancy our building is or our programs, our operations, or how good Jenny sings, or how slick or great our business meeting is, or any of that stuff. That is not the power. The power of the church is simply how faithful we are to bring people to Jesus. Bring him to me. How long? Now, in view here, how long? How long? In view here is the length of time that Jesus is going to be in bodily form and visible by sight. That is in view here. How long am I going to be with you bodily where you can just tangibly bring it to me? Because he's going to the right hand of the Father after the cross and resurrection to intercede for us. And so, he must be accessed by faith, not by sight, via prayer. And that's going to be the point that happens at the end of this passage. This one's only cast out by prayer. And so in view for Jesus here is his going to the right hand of the Father and that you, in order to bring people to him, are going to have to access him by faith. Particularly in prayer. And so let me, let me kind of lay out what that looks like with a visual. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. So as much as I love the Bible and I love Bible study and, I, and it builds my faith and I oftentimes pray the scriptures, there is a power of God given to us through prayer. Uniquely through prayer. Faith, prayer is the highway that faith takes to the power of God. It accesses the power of God. It interfaces with it. And so, look, look at how this story turns out. And I think it's going to make this case crystal clear for us. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw the spirit, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. It's a Marilyn Manson concert. 21. And he asked his, and Jesus asked his father... How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Notice the demonic is always trying to destroy the image of God on man. Doesn't matter if that's drugs or abortion or a possession like this. The demonic always tries to deface the image of God that you bear. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So, notice a couple things here. One, the demonic that is in the life of this child says it describes him as making him mute. It mutes him. Like, he can't, he can't sing to God with his tongue. He can't, he can't tell his mama that he, I love you. Right? 
Maybe you could express it, but there's no singing. There's no saying. It says that there's a, a seizure where he's like not fully in control of his bodily functions. And it's like debilitating. It's terrifying. It's frustrating. Like this isn't really even worth comparing, but um, like last week I sounded like I'd smoke like six packs. My voice was all messed up last week. And uh, it's kind of getting over like a common cold or whatever. And uh, I grew up, I don't know about you, but we, we just don't take Dayquil, NyQuil. I don't know if we couldn't afford it. I don't know what the deal was. My grandma had like antiseptic spray. Y'all know what that stuff is? You blast the back of the throat with that and you don't even want to breathe anymore. You're like, I'd just rather the cold take me to Jesus. But they just hit you with the antiseptic spray and that's basically what we did. And so... Uh, I had this, Whitney's like, go get some Dayquil, NyQuil. And I was like, ah, I don't really take that stuff. I, I'll try it. So I started taking it. And um, just FYI, like when I wake up in the morning, my soul is caffeinated. I don't need caffeine. I usually don't drink coffee till the afternoon. Like I wake up and I'm ready to go, right? I'm hyped. Okay. I took this NyQuil not knowing that it is a powerful narcotic. <laughs> and I put it down. I woke up the next day and it felt like I was in bed here asleep and up there is reality. And it was like sheets of glass between me and what I needed to do for the day. Like you have to climb out of a dream state to get up there. I was like, how do people give this to kids? We had people over and they started talking about it and they said, have you ever had dreams while you're on NyQuil? I said, yeah, they're all terrifying, right? And I have... I. And before I knew Christ, I've done drugs that had less effect than NyQuil, all right? So it was like I had to wean myself off of this juice, okay? And, and I felt like if you've ever had night terrors, and I've had those before, where you can't move your body but you're conscious. Anybody ever had that before? Is, you need, like it kind of had, it's like a, a, a junior varsity version of a night terror. And a night terror, it's like you can't move, but you, like you're conscious in a weird way. And if that's what we feel and we call it terrifying what is this cat going through when he feels something controlling him that he can't control when it seizes him and it's too much for him you take the most terrifying sleep experience you've ever had you multiply it and then come down here to our brother suffering notice something here the demon gets more violent the closer they bring him to Jesus. The spiritual forces that oppose you, the closer you walk with God, the more they're going to go full mosh pit. Hey man, you stay American and just like everybody else, you stay chasing sin, you stay off the path. Yo man, like... They'll just help, help you down that direction. They will usher you. But you start to turn and take the narrow path to follow God and watch all the demons of hell begin to thrash. Because the closer he gets to Jesus, the harder the enemy fights. Isn't that true? Jesus does something here that I think is kind of curious and it's probably the biggest problem I had this week with this passage. He begins to talk to the Father. Not his heavenly father, the father of the boy. The boy is being brought to him, maybe from some distance away with a crowd. They're having to bring it through. And as the child is coming forward, he's interacting with the dad. 
asking him questions that he already knows the answer to as God. How long has this been happening to him? What happens? He, be- he begins to listen to the father unpack his trauma. He walks through the baggage that this has had on the whole family's life. I know some of you have had different medical things either in yourself or your children and you understand how that has affected your whole family. As that child with all the issues is being brought forward, he's encouraging the father, he's processing with the father, he's dealing with the trauma that sin, evil, darkness, and the fall has caused. I'm crazy familiar with welfare, uh, having grown up really poor, and I know that, and worked in the church, I deal with welfare all the time. Jesus is unlike welfare, because welfare sends you a check, but there's never any people that come around that actually care about you. Jesus is not just meeting the need and forgetting the person. Jesus is simultaneously meeting the greatest need that his boy has. And he's a sympathetic high priest who loves the person. And this is why the government will never be able to serve the broken and hurting in our community as well as a church can. Because we don't care about just throwing money at the needs of others in our community. We care about their souls. We care about the whole situation and the whole person, the whole family. And we have a sympathetic high priest who showed us how it's done. Amen. So Jesus is unpacking with him things that maybe even already knows, it does know the answers to. But he says the same thing in the middle of this interaction that catches Jesus. Did you notice that? He says, look in, uh, I believe it's verse 20. Um, Verse 22, actually. It's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy the image of God. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If? (laughs) And Jesus said to him, if you can. I mean, there's a play in Greek here where he kind of flips the script on what that guy just said. All things are possible for the one who believes. This is a phrase or an idea that is repeated like a dozen plus times in the Bible. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I'm going to argue this is where Jesus has been drawing him the whole situation. And by the way, he's trying to draw you to this place as well. I don't know how many times in my walk with Christ I've prayed this. I believe God Help my unbelief. If you can, if you can. Uh, this reminds me, uh, have you ever been a kid with your parents and they ask you to do something and you grumbled, you complain? So-and-so doesn't have to do as much as I do. God, why do I always have to do everything? Right? And then all of a sudden, your mother or whatever just looks sideways at you, head on a swivel. That... Always, everything, just snaps it. It's like you got 2.4 seconds to correct what you just screwed up, right? Just some word in mother's soul just caught her sideways and she just, what? Help me, come again, right? The quiet words of the Virgin Mary. Try again. It just, 
Jesus latches onto this if you can. If, if the problem is not on God's side. He's like, I'm good for it. All things are possible for him who believes. So maybe phrase this a way that would help you understand it. Belief. Kids, listen to me because this is a principle that will serve you for the rest of your life. Belief opens possibilities with God that doubt closes. Belief opens possibilities with God that doubt closes. Doubt, church, limits you. Belief opens all things that are possible. Verse 24, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus wanted him to get right here and he wants you to get to this place. So, Pause. I, listen, I know the faith healing charlatans that are out there on TV. And so this just has to be said. One aspect of where we could look at this from a wrong angle would come and say, well, simply Jesus is saying, if you just had enough faith and believed, then everything would be fine. I believe that understanding completely misses the point of the text. Here's why. Look down at wh- where this finishes. If I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd uh, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and says, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Because we already taught earlier in this gospel that some demonic stuff leaves a person, gets twice as bad and comes back. He's saying, not only are you going to be delivered, but you're delivered eternally. It's never coming back again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot, which I don't know, is there kinds of demonic stuff? I don't know if that's at least a possibility. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer or the text may have prayer and fasting in some of the manuscripts. So the question of, is it because you don't have enough faith that you don't get delivered, is clearly not in view here. The reason why that is, is he takes the dude's little faith and says, that's enough. Not quantity, but quality. He's like, you got a little? He's like, I believe, help my unbelief because it seems insufficient. Jesus is like, no, give me the faith that you got and I will multiply it. I will do exceedingly and abundantly more than you'll think, imagine or ask. It's a mustard seed that's incredibly small, but when it grows into a great tree that the birds of the air nest in it. If you had even small faith, you would say to this mountain, be removed into the sea. Anybody heard any of this stuff before? I'm just just playing with the Bible here. The problem is not if you had enough faith and you believed you would, sure, okay, good. What's in view here is, is if you will give Jesus even your little, a little's enough. As Tom DeLong from Blink-182 says, a little's enough. Jesus invites them to give me what you got. So l- let me just note one thing about Jesus here. Your Jesus has come 
to help you with doubt. Jesus has come to help you with your unbelief. To say that you ain't got enough and to focus on what you lack instead of focusing on what you have and exercising that is missing the very point of this passage. It's missing the very point. Jesus helps the man's unbelief by acting in accord with whatever amount of weak faith he gives to Jesus. Isn't that unbelievably encouraging for some of us struggling? Jesus comes to help our unbelief. And I, I think this is even I think this is even clearer when we look at the disciples here. So look at the man who has a little faith, but it's enough. And then look at the disciples who we might argue having walked with Jesus have more than him. And yet, don't use it. The disciples asked Jesus, did you notice privately? Like they, they fumbled it spectacularly in public. Failure was enough that they're not going to in front of the scribes and the crowd. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? They don't do that. They let Jesus do his thing. He gets all the glory, raises the boy up. They, they go to the next scene. They get in private like Nicodemus and they say, Jesus, why could we not? Why couldn't I do it? We did it before. We've cast out demons before. You've used me in the past to do things. Why couldn't I do it this time? Isn't that what is in view? The man has little faith and he uses it. The disciples maybe have greater faith. But what we see here is that they put it on the shelf and they're not exercising it. So let me ask you this. If it's really about if you only had more faith and you believed you would do great things for God. Sure, let's believe all that. Amen. I want more faith. You want more faith. Let's do that. But church, what are you doing with the faith that you have? Here's the indictment on the disciples. They're living off of their past experiences. They're living off their past times with God. They're living off of yesterday's power. And manna kept for tomorrow spoils. Each day has its own troubles and each day needs its own grace. It's like, we used to be good, Jesus. We used to cast out demons. Why couldn't we get this one? And Jesus says, this one, this kind, only comes out by prayer. And I don't think he's talking about in that moment praying over them. Because uh, this passage and other texts will talk about prayer and fasting. And it doesn't mean like, okay, we got a demon in front of us. Everybody put down the carbohydrates. Like, that's not what's in view. What's in view here is... You didn't prepare to meet these kind of spiritual challenges four days ago. And you needed to be built up in the Holy Spirit for challenges like this that you never saw coming. And you think that because you did Bible study when you were 13 years old, that that faith and what you did then is manna enough to carry you over to today, and it's not. We need fresh experiences of God's power. We need fresh outpourings of His Spirit and of His grace. Some of you are living off of faith 
and moments with God that happened 20 years ago. And you're coasting. And when you face spiritual challenge, you're not going to be able to do it because God wants to invite you to trust Him today. To need Him today. Why couldn't we do it? You were not prepared. You were not prepared. You didn't come into my presence and labor in prayer. You didn't spend time in my presence and walk with me and abide with me. You haven't put away your selfish desires and your flesh and fasting and pressed in to hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so when you faced the darkness without me, you came up short. And you failed spectacularly. And I think the, the invitation is for us to learn from it. To learn from it. One last point, maybe we're done. Um, the way I would put this is, faith is a muscle. That when you exercise it, it grows in strength. And when you neglect it, it develops atrophy. I believe in this sense, the physical parallels the supernatural or the spiritual. And to grow muscle, from best that we learn um, from experts on YouTube, is that the best way to grow muscle is to absolutely exhaust it. Like to get stronger, what you have to do is, is you've got to get exhausted. And that exhaustion, your brain body kicks in saying, if we're going to be lifting heavy stuff or we're going to be running really far, it's like, body, you need to build some stuff. You need to build extra muscle fiber so that next time we face a challenge that might be bigger than this, we are more equipped to deal with it. And that's how your body builds strength and endurance is that you have to exhaust it. You've got to wear it out. Like, and this doesn't even apply to physical things. If you want to be great as a scholar, what you have to do is you've got to read books until your eyes bleed. Until you're ready to pass out and you just got to read. And you've got to study and you've got to dive in. If you want to be great at something, you have to push to the edge of exhaustion in that thing. And then wake up the next day, get new inspiration and new spring, and press until you're ready to pass out again. You want to be great in marriage? Serve her until you got nothing left. Wake up the next day, ask for God's grace, and wake up and serve until you got nothing left. And by the end of your life, you will have become great and strong as a servant in your family. What you got to do is you got to push yourself beyond the comfort, comforts of your existing limitations to the point of exhaustion, go to sleep, go to the mountaintop, get refilled, and then go again. Every amount of fuel that God gives us in His Word, in His Spirit, burn it all up. Sleep like a baby and then do it again. And in that moment, our faith, having exhausted the muscles of our faith, it grows. But you neglect it, you don't pay attention. Atrophy. Atrophy. And then all of a sudden, your nonchalant attitude towards community or the word or prayer or the presence of God hits you when you face a challenge that is just too big for you. 
And God loves you enough to teach you, to coach you, to correct you. The challenge of the church is to believe God. The challenge of the church is to believe God and pray. So I want to trust God right now. Let's just pray, and then we're going to sing and worship to Him. If you bow your heads and maybe assume a posture of prayer. I don't know where you're at in here. Surely there's some of us here who love God with all of our hearts. We're truly born again and disciples of Jesus. But we are not walking in power. And maybe via prayer, in faith, you would just ask for God to fill you up all over again. Fill you up for challenges that you don't even know that you're going to have to face this week. We don't want to be found by the scribes with lots of arguments about Christianity, but no power. Some of us in here, I don't know everybody or their hearts, God knows, but some of you have never called upon the name of the Lord and been saved. And I would invite you through prayer just to call upon Jesus and ask Him to save you from your sins and to fill you with this power that we're talking about. Brothers brothers and sisters, friends, it'll change your life. That if in the place of your failures, you can find the Jesus that changes everything. So I'm going to pray for you. Let's stand in agreement and uh, go to God for all that we need. Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Your presence is to us life and vitality and strength. God, it is power such that it's our source, our fuel, that we do the things that bring you honor and glory. And so God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that are empty, that are truly yours, born again, but they're just empty. They got activities, they got arguments, they got debates, but they got no power. God, would you fill them with your rocket fuel of your Holy Spirit? And Lord, if there's one or two or a handful here who've never called upon your name and never known what the sweetness is of abiding in your presence with prayer, God, would your Holy Spirit just convict them down to the bone to get right with you and to trust you this morning? God, all of this activity is bigger than any one of us, any human. So Holy Spirit, come and do the impossible in your church, God. I beg that like a father standing before a mute son. I beg that for my brothers and sisters here. Pray it in the sweet name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Y'all stand and sing with us.